This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. As we've been going through these seven letters to seven churches, uh, I've been trying to get over the point to you over and over again that these letters have various different meanings. They have a local meaning. The letters are written to specific churches at a specific time that was dealing with a specific problem. They've, they've got a, a meaning for all the churches. That's why at the end of every one of these letters it says, he has an ear to ear here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. They have a personal application because we find ourselves spiritually struggling sometimes with the same things these churches are. But most amazing, there's a prophetic message. Each of these churches lay out for us church history in advance. The church at Ephesus, for example, was the church of the first century. It's the only church that uses the word apostle in it. And the Lord said good things and bad things about the church. The bad thing about the church was the fact that they had left their first love. They had quit being focused on having intimacy with the Lord. It was more about knowing God rather than experiencing God. And, And of course, the admonition to the church was to repent and go back and do the things they did in the beginning. This covered the first century of um, church history until about the close of the canon. Then we have the church in Smyrna, which the Lord only said good things about. And this was a suffering church. It's, it's a church that was went through two centuries of persecution and still held firm together. And the Lord commended them for their faith and their perseverance during that time. And, and the reason why I have it highlighted in green is because we need to learn from this church. Whatever the Lord says good about any of these churches, we need to emulate that. What the Lord says bad about these churches, we need to reject uh, in our own lives, but especially when we find a church like Smyrna and later on Philadelphia that he only says good things about, that's the kind of church we need to be. And then we move on to Pergamos. Pergamos, of course, means mixed marriage. It was all of a sudden when the church and the state became married together at the Edict of Toleration, when Constantine basically made Christianity the state religion, and we found pagan temples turned into Christian churches, and pagan priests are now Christian priests. And and the Lord says both good things and bad things about this church, and it brings us up until about 6.0, from, from 3.12, the Edict of Toleration from Constantine to about 6.06, when... uh Boniface III was commissioned as the first pope, which brings us to Thyatira, which is the letter we're at right now. It is the largest of these letters. It is the the most profound. It's a pinnacle. It's right in the center. And everything from this latter point hinges on this letter to the church of Thyatira. And the Lord said to this letter both good and bad things. And I have a hard time understanding that, as I shared with you last week, as Thyatira uh, represents the Catholic Church, especially the Middle Age, medieval church, and all the abuses and all the false doctrine and all the stuff that the Protestant Reformation brought us out of. Yet the Lord says good and bad things about this church. As a matter of fact, he says the most positive things about this church that he says about any other church that he says both good and bad things about. Thyatira comes from two words, meaning sacrifice and continual. It's the mixing of faith and works and salvation and denies the finished works of Christ on the cross to atone for our sins. You have to, this means continual sacrifice, that Jesus' blood wasn't enough, so we have to keep going back and we have to keep asking for forgiveness and we have to keep confessing our sins and we have the the rosary beads and penance and purgatory and, and all that kind of stuff that we know is simply not biblical. It rep- represents the Catholic Church and especially the Church of the Middle Age. And uh, I want to just take a minute and kind of read this letter uh, to you, realizing this is the largest of all the letters that Christ wrote to the seven churches because it covers the largest period of time from 606 all the way up until the Tribulation time. First, of course, each of these letters is broken out into various 
categories and segments, and it always begins with the name of Christ. To this particular letter, it says, And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things say the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And we talked about that last week. Then there's the good news to this church. This is what you're doing good. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. According to Christ, this church is actually getting better. Then there's the bad news in the letter. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, continuing with the bad news, I will cast her into a, a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Pretty rough bad news. And then there's an exhortation like Christ gives to all the churches. Now I say to you, and to the rest in Thyatira, and he defines those as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have, how long? Until the end of this church age? No, until I come. Because these carry all the way into the tribulation time. Then the promise, and he who overcomes and, in addition to overcoming, keeps my word until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. And then he quotes Psalm 2 here. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, as I also, and I will give him the morning star. And then, of course, there's this closing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in order to understand the other church letters, the ones that bring the time frame closer to what we live in, the age of Laodicea, we have to get a foundation of what this church in Thyatira is all about, what they're doing good, and we know what they didn't do good. And we have to understand that it is God who is master of his church, and it's God's responsibility to discipline in church, is correct this church, and it's not ours. Do you understand that? It's God's church. We are members of his church. And so last week we looked at the name of Christ here. To the angel of the church of Thyatira, write these things said, and I shared with you this is the first time, the only time in these letters that he refers to himself as a son of God. Revelation chapter 1, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, the suffering servant, the one who came and died for our sins. But to this letter, it's the son of God, described as someone who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And we talked about last week, this is God coming in judgment. I'm coming to judge my church. They're doing some things good and some things not so good, and I want them to repent. And then he hits them with the good news. But the good news is spectacular. The good news is something like I can't even imagine. None of the other churches, including the church of Sardis, which is the Reformation church, or the church in Philadelphia, which is the great missionary church, which the Lord only said good things to, or the church in Laodicea, where the, the age in which we live right now, where the Lord says nothing good about, none of those have anything even close to the good things the Lord says about this church, the medieval church, the Catholic church. Shocking. I know your works. On and on, he continually judged people by their works and their deeds, but he knows their works and their love. This word is agape. It's God-formed love. It's an altruistic kind of love. It's not, it's not a friend kind of love. It's a like a love that we can't even really imagine. It's a kind of love that God has for us that we try to have for him but fail so often. But he knows their agape and their service. This is a word that we get the word ministry from. But Lord, all the stuff they did wrong and all the popes and all the mistakes and, and how they persecuted the church who came out of them in the, in the Reformation. And now you're saying that you approve of their ministry and their faith? What faith? And their patience against who? 
And then you have the audacity to say that they're getting better. That the church, as it began piling on top of each other, heresy after heresy after heresy, was actually getting better. And for your works, the last are more than the first. How can that be? How can the Lord say these kind of things to a church that from a Protestant view, which we all are, is so bad and so twisted? Now, we're not talking about Catholics who go to those churches. There's a lot of good, God-fearing people. We're talking about the church institution itself. How can that be? makes no sense at all, especially when we understand prophetically what this church represents. It's the pagan church during the Dark Ages and the false teaching of the Catholic Church. It's the institutional mixing of faith and works for salvation, claiming the sacrifice of Jesus was not enough to secure our atonement. Therefore, we must continue to continually offer our sacrifices to be reconciled to God. That's what the word means, continual sacrifice. Period runs from 607 AD when Boniface III was made the first pope universally until the tribulation period. And I, you know, I, I don't understand how, how all that can happen. And the Lord started revealing some stuff to us that I shared with you last week that kind of explains the things he values versus the things we value. I mean, we filter everything through our own frame of reference. What's important to us? Doctrine, truth, independence. That's why we have nine billion different Christian churches, right? And the Catholic Church has one. Jesus' intention was to have one. And every time we disagree with somebody, we have a big split, and half the people go start another church, we think revival's taking place, but it hasn't. I mean, it's, it's chaos in the Protestant church today. Look at the bad news. We're going to focus on today, part of this. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And I want, to, I want to go through these words and make sure we understand the implication of those. I have a few things against the church in Thyatira. Why? Because you. He's talking about the church here, but he's not talking about just the members of the church, everybody, like all lumped together in a corporate sum. He's talking about the church leaders, and he's also talking about the majority of the congregation. Because if the church leaders wanted to head in one direction, and the majority of the congregation decided to say no, the church leaders have no power. You understand that, don't you? That, you know, you can't lead someone unless they're willing to follow. And so when it talks about you, because you, the church, the church leaders in this age, and the majority of the congregation of Thyatira, you allow. And the word allow means in the Greek to permit, not to hinder, to leave alone, or to tolerate. You've tolerated and you've allowed something. You've allowed that woman. And of course, this shouldn't even be an issue in this church because 1 Timothy 2.12 talks about the fact that women are not to have pastoral leadership in a church, but nevertheless they do. And then he defines this woman as Jezebel. You've allowed this woman Jezebel. That's not a real woman named Jezebel at that church. I mean, it could be. But what the Lord is doing is he's pointing back to the Old Testament, which he always does in the book of Revelation, to describe what kind of influence and what kind of woman this is. And Jezebel has to be one of the vilest women in the Old Testament. Remember the story? I mean, she, she, come, she convinced Israel to, to, um, sacrifice to her idols, and they built uh, statues to Asherat in the, the holy place. She, with Ahab, uh, used the governmental force to kill a man to steal his um, to uh, steal his garden. I mean, she was just a vile, vile woman. She she was prophesied um, how she was going to die, and she died kind of a terrible death. But when you think about Jezebel, you're thinking about probably one of the worst prophetesses in Israel who came in and twisted the truth of God in such a way that she led the people astray. And that's what's happening in this church. You have allowed, you've permitted, you've tolerated this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. I've noticed that every time the Lord attacks the church, he either attacks the church physically from the outside or attacks the church doctrinally from the inside. Every time the Lord attacks the church from the outside, the church gets stronger. Have you ever noticed that? 
Because what happens is, if all of a sudden we became under great persecution by the government, the only people that would show up are those who were absolutely committed to Christ. It, the rest of us wouldn't. They would just filter away. It's too expensive. I don't really care anymore. Jesus doesn't mean that much to us. And so whenever outside persecution takes place, Satan learned this during the um, the second and third century. The church grows stronger. It grows pure. And it becomes an incredible force. And so what Satan has decided to do is he goes in and he tries to pervert the church on the inside. I'll get their focus off Christ and get their focus on something else. In the church at Ephesus, he says, but I have this against you that you hate, but, I, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we were wondering who these people were. And if you remember, we were talking about the time frame in Ephesus. These are a group of people who came in and said there's supposed to be a division between clergy and laity. There's supposed to be a, a division between uh, the pastor and the congregation. And they, they preached a false doctrine. And what they were trying to do is cause division within the church that we have today. Even, our, um, even in a traditional church setting, you know, you've got... Um, You've got the congregation. Then you have an elevated stage where the pastor is. You've got a big pulpit. In some churches, they even have a little gate. They call them praying benches. You know what I mean? A gate that kind of go, no, it's, it's a praying bench, but it also communicates that clergy is different than laity. That I have the backside collar and you don't. That, that I'm the hired holy man and you're not. Therefore, you don't need to do any ministry. I do all the ministry because... That's what I get paid to do, and all you guys have to do is just keep funding the coffers. And none of that is true. None of that is true. And, and all of a sudden, in the very beginning, that's what the Nicolaitans were teaching, and and Satan's going in there in the first century, trying to uh, trying to get their eyes off the simplicity of Christ. We find in Pergamos. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, all of a sudden, it hasn't gone away. We're in the second and third century, and now the teaching is beginning to take place. And each of those big cities now had their own little churches, their own bishops, and they were exercising control over everybody else. And the church wasn't run by a plurality of elders anymore. It was now run by these power centers who would fight for prominence over each other. And finally, the bishop of Rome became more important than the bishop of Constantinople, so he became the first pope. And, and all this is beginning to happen. And as Satan goes in trying to twist these things in the first three centuries. In Pergamos also it says, I have a few things against you, because the, you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And we talked about that. It's, a, it's this false prophet from the Old Testament coming in and trying to use God and use the name of Christ for personal gain. And, and this is happening in, in the church here so much so, it says, that and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, note this, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. That's exactly what the Lord says about the church in Thyatira, only reverses them. What's happening here? And all of these early churches, and even the ones we live in today, Satan is trying to deceive God's people by persuading them to adopt a lifestyle that will allow them acceptance into the world and also membership into the church. Well, wait a second. I can be a member of any church I want. All I have to do is come and raise my hand and fill out a card, and maybe the pastor will ask me if I'm saved, and, and I'll, sure, I'm saved, and, and that makes me a member of a church. And by the way, if I'm a member of this church, and you guys don't like the fact that I've left my wife and I'm sleeping with my secretary, and you actually get upset with me about that, I'll just go to that church over here, because they don't care what I do. See the problem? And so, if I can, if I can create a church, that allows me to live however sinfully I want and still come to church on Sunday and worship the Lord and be praised by other Christians, that's what I need. That's what I want. But if you really understand how the Lord set up the church, you can't have it both ways because membership in the church back then was different than it is today. I mean, it was a, there was a joint sacrifice. We're all suffering because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have we suffered at all as Christians today? Not really, because our life pretty much is kind of like the life of the world, and we're just a little bit different than they are. They watch R-rated movies. We watch movies that only have 12 F-words. 
and that makes us a little more sanctified than they are. You know, they have a divorce rate of um, 68% of all the marriages, and our divorce rate today is only 64%, so look how much better we're doing as believers in Christ than they are. Isn't that insane? Satan has always attacked the church that way, and he attacks the church that way today. And the messages in many churches are all about you. They're feel-good messages. You know, I, I won't I won't tell you what church it was, but I'm on the Internet today, and I get a uh, local pastor talking about uh, the sermon he's preached. You need to come to church on Sunday. Come to church because, you know, we're having a great message. And the great message is, do you feel depressed? Do you feel downtrodden? Do you feel like things aren't going your way? The answer isn't in drugs or the answer isn't in this. The answer is in the Bible. Come and we'll show you how to overcome your needs, your felt needs. It's all about us. It's all about coming to Christ to get something out of it to make my life on this earth better. That's not at all what Jesus promised us. He promised us when we became one like him that we would suffer trials and tribulations, that the world would reject us, that we would be a pilgrim and a sword joiner. This place is not our home. That if they did what they did to the master of the house, how much more will they do to the servants of the master of the house? But that doesn't play well in America, does it? Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. What? Because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself. Now note this. This is a... This is a self-proclaimed leader. And I find it's, it's amazing that, that you can only be a self-proclaimed leader if other people follow. If I say, I'm a self-proclaimed leader and run out here all by myself, I, I ain't doing nothing. I'm just walking at the front of a parade that nobody's joined. And so the people are actually following her. They're looking for something, I don't know, to, to meet a need that they have. And, and we live in the, the land of self-proclaimed leaders. Well, what does it take to start a church today? Does it take a seminary education? No. Does it take a backing for some other church? In other words, to be under the authority of somebody else? Does it take a um, to have a mentoring relationship with another? Pa- no. All it takes is a charismatic personality and a place to meet and a website and a rock band. And you can have a church. I mean, it's, it's sad what happens today. And, and there's no checks and balances because we're splintered in a million different ways. What is the Christian's church position on abortion? We don't have one. Now, we have one, and they have one, but theirs is different than ours, and this is kind of different than theirs. And, and so if the news media wants to know how the Christian church feels about abortion, they can get uh, churches and pastors with large churches to cover every single possible response on the entire gambit. Could they not? What is the church's position on gay marriage? What is the church's position on this, that, or the other? And then the fact is, we don't know, because we're not one church anymore. The church in Thyatira stayed one church, even with all the problems that they had. But we decided during the Reformation, our, our heritage decided during the Reformation, to remove ourselves from that, to create something new that splintered in a million different places. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, a one who is an interpreter of God or is acting from divine influence. And my... Christian experience, people who say that they're prophets from God and they hear from God and God told me to tell you this, I can tell you that probably 95% of them are women. And I don't know why that is. Are they more sensitive to that? Are they more open to that? Or is it just the way it is? It doesn't say that there's this man, Ahab, who was a prophet, but there is a woman who calls herself a prophetess who is t- who is teaching and seducing God's servant to do things they should never do. The word teach here, of course, means to instruct by word or mouth or to catechize. I love that. It means I make a statement and you respond. It's like rote memory. We're gonna we're gonna move the church away from the simplicity of Christ and righteousness by rote memorization. Teaches them to teach and seduce. Which means the cause to wonder, to be led or go astray, to be misled or be, to be affected by a deceiver. I have a few things against you, church, because you've allowed this woman to come in and teach within the church and seduce my servants, my doulosses, my voluntary slaves. Those people defining Christians who have freely given up their right to anything and to everything for following devotion to me. You have taught them and seduced them to do things that aren't right at all. And what are those things? 
The first one is to commit sexual immorality. And this is where one of the words that we get porn and pornography from. It means to commit or practice fornication, to play the harlot as a term for a male prostitute, or to live in lewdness. Well, I, I don't actually do that. I, I've never been... I've never been sexually unfaithful to my wife at all. Yet I, when I was younger, I'd look at Playboy magazine, or today it's a couple clicks on the internet, and I'm watching porn here, and, and or I'm watching movies that have gratuitous sex in it. And would you don't think that has an effect on us? You don't think that matters? And to we things sacrificed to idols. I don't know what that's, what's a big deal about that? I mean, didn't Paul already deal with those issues? I mean, Paul addressed the issue of eating things sacrificed to idols. So I'm not sure from a Gentile perspective, and I'll explain it to you in a minute, why that's even a big deal. But the church of Thyatira, the Lord had some rough things to say about. And it had to do with teaching and seducing. And we don't know exactly what the early church in Thyatira, this woman or this doctrine or this group of people that the Lord labels Jezebel was actually teaching. But if you study some of the heresies that were going on at that time, you can kind of have a pretty good idea of some of the things they were struggling with. One is the Greek concept of dualism. You know, it's uh, in the Greek culture, uh, affected the Gentiles greatly, and it was always brought into the church. And the idea of, of Greek dualism is the fact that you have spirit and body. I'm a spirit, spirit is good, body's bad. There's a separation between those two. Everything about the spirit is good, the body counts for nothing. So therefore, since the body is not made in the image of God and the body counts for nothing, I can do anything I want with my body and it not affect my spirit. And so therefore, I can overeat, I can take drugs, I can be involved in sexual immorality. It doesn't matter. It's kind of license to sin. And the church the church had that doctrine brought into it. And that's why Paul and, and his letter to the Corinthians are going, wait, 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 wait. He said, you got somebody in your church who's having an affair with his father's wife? And you're not doing anything about that? I mean, that, that's I can't even believe even the Gentiles and the lost people don't have that kind of sin going on. And you have it in the church and do nothing about it. Well, it's okay because, you know, that they're just doing that with their body and it doesn't affect their spirit. And even if it does, they've got this strange view of God's grace, where God forgives us for everything. And by the way, does he? Yes. His death on the cross forgave us past, present, and future. My sins that I commit tomorrow are already forgiven by the blood of Christ. Would you agree with that? Well, then if I take that to a logical it's a carnal conclusion. It means I can do anything I want. I can sin to the hilt because it's already forgiven. It doesn't matter. It's just grace, 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 grace. And I've actually had that thrown in my face when I confronted a man who was um, um, living less than holy with his family. And that was his, that was literally his response. No, no, it's okay. It doesn't matter what I do because it's all grace, grace, grace. No, that's a... That's a, a heretical view of God's grace, which the church had to deal with um, in the first century, first and second century. Or these letters talk about the deep things of Satan. Well, you don't understand. I can't minister to people who are involved in the deep things of Satan unless I also get involved in the deep things of Satan. Because Paul said, I became all things to all people, so I might win some. Do you remember? So therefore, these guys are involved in the occult. I need to get involved in the occult to be light in darkness. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But it feeds the flesh. It feels good. It's something they wanted to do and Whatever her teaching was, a majority of the church followed her. A majority of the church bought into that. Because living righteously isn't as much fun in the flesh as living um, carnally. Would you agree? I mean, nobody would like, is it better to overeat or stay on a diet? Exactly. That's why they don't call them live it. They call them diets. You know, it's, I mean, it, it is. Is it, is it better to to watch something that ministers to you spiritually? Or do we gravitate towards things that give us some sort of physical experience? And I mean, if we're dealing with the flesh, sin deals with the flesh. And whatever it was, the church says, I'm in. And things begin to pile on top of each other that uh, 
We talked about last week these heretical doctrines that just got the focus off Christ and Satan began to win during this time. All right, Steve, that's, that's nice. Um, you know, that's a good little history lesson on the Church of Thyatira. But, uh, you know, I, I've got bills to pay and I've got to go to work tomorrow and I've got, you know, a sick loved one at home. And, and I need to know how that applies to me because that's a big thing in church today, by the way. All ch- messages have to be relevant. You ever notice that on churches? You know, we're relevant. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means what we're preaching is stuff that you can relate to. So that means if things in the Bible I can't relate to, that they don't have the same value. No, but it means the church is all about us. So here's the relevant part. How does that apply to us? Okay, let's cut to the chase here. Scripture teaches that we all can fall prey to sin. Would you agree? Even sexual sin. Even the the type of sin that hurts the most. We all can fall prey to that. Matter of fact, the Scripture talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Remember, this letter is going to believers. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? How shall I then take the member of Christ and make them a member of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. He's, he's communicating this to believers who are struggling with sexual sin. He continues, flee sexual immorality. I think that's amazing. As a matter of fact, Justice taught on that uh, a long time ago where, you know, when it comes to sin, we're supposed to stand up against sin, make our John Wayne, you know, position of the Alamo, lying in the sand. We're, we're not going to move from sin, except when it comes to sexual sin, from immorality. And what it says here, it says, no, you need to run because you know you can't stand up against that because it's, it's so compelling. It's, a, it's like sin in another class. Every sin that a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The idea is the fact is people in his church were struggling with sexual immorality, with sexual sin, and Paul is explaining to them how ridiculous that is because people can fall into that sin. Got that. There's grace to cover that. But one who teaches and encourages another to sin in that category is in another category altogether. I mean, it's that, that's a totally different deal. You know, it's one thing for me to fall into sexual sin and I ask the Lord to forgive me for looking at porn or something I shouldn't see or not bouncing my eyes or whatever it is. It's a totally different thing for me to get together with a bunch of guys and tell them it doesn't matter what Christ says. Look what I found. Go home and look at this. Log onto that website. Here's my, uh, here's my username and password. That puts me in a, that puts me in a different category when it comes to sin. And the Lord says that People like that, like this Jezebel, deserve the harshest kind of punishment. Now watch this carefully. Jesus is, is teaching, and these little children come up for him to lay his hand on them and to bless them. And the disciples say, no, 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 you know, little kids kind of head out, and, you know, we don't, we don't need to do that. No, no, he brings the little children to him, and he sits the kids on his lap, and he begins to teach them something about the tender heart of a young child. Here's what he says. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, that's not necessarily a age little one. He says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. If you were going to lead my children astray, if you were going to teach them to sin, if you were going to take the simplicity of the gospel and the trustfulness of, of these open hearts that have just come to know me as Lord and Savior and lead them like Jezebel did into perversion, then it'd be better for you if you were never born, that you were just drowned in infancy because I hate it that much. And then he goes on to talk about even worse than that, self-mutilation. Look what he says here. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that, to that man by whom the offenses come. And then he continues. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than have two hands and two feet and be cast into everlasting fire. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That there's a a responsibility that we have. And if you're one of those people like this Jezebel here that is leading my people astray, God says it'd be better for you to never even been born. Our defenses go up. Well, well, wait, wait a second. I'm not Jezebel and I don't ever preach false doctrine. I mean, I don't, I don't get my family together and talk about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and Billy Bob. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't put another person in the tree. I don't do that. So, so how in the world am I guilty? How does this apply to me of causing others to stumble? Okay. Let's start with fathers. What kind of example are you at home? Do you yell at your wife? You sit at home, watch television all day? Do you have no time for her? Do, do your children know how much you love Christ by how much you love her? Or do you just love you? Do you raise your voice at her? Do you ever struck her? Do you, do you treat her like a, like a cherished possession? Or do you treat her like something that you own who's been placed on earth just to take care of your needs? I mean, how do you, how do you do that? And your kids are watching. And your wife is watching. I married you because you said that you loved me more than you loved yourself. But it sure doesn't feel like it in marriage. Mothers, do you cherish your children? Do you do the best for them? Or are you still trying to go out and build your own career, your own name for yourself? Having two incomes in a family because two incomes are better than one income and they allow me to have more sheetrock while my kids are shipped away for somebody else to take care of them during the time that I, as their mother, am supposed to be doing that. I mean, how does that work? By the way, mothers, do you, do you honor your husband or do you put him down constantly? Do you roll your eyes? at him every time he tries to take a leadership position. So he's, he's decided it's not even worth it anymore, and he's kind of just meek in the corner. I mean, how is that? I mean, And your kids are watching. Is your daughter going to learn how to love her husband by watching you love yours? Husbands and wives. How about our friends? I'm amazed on Facebook. Um, Pastors, too. Hey, I just went to see this movie, man. It's really great. You need to go watch it. It's an R-rated movie, knucklehead. You know, you, you want me to go, you're, you're, you're a pastor or a Christian, and because you thought the movie was great, you're now encouraging everybody to go to a movie that has 75 F-words and a bunch of nudity and gratuitous violence and a theme that has nothing to do with Christ, and because you thought it was great, you're now encouraging us to do that ourselves? I'll never forget that, um, I'll never forget when I was working for New Life 91.9, we were having this fundraiser and, uh, our station manager had decided that, you know, he wanted to have some sort of video clip to communicate to the donors. He's a big heavy hitter donors for the station. How much their small sacrifice matters. So he took the ending scene in Schindler's list where, um, you know, I forget the guy's name, but he's talking about, I could have saved more people if I wouldn't wear this ring, or I could have sold that car. And, and you know, if you will sacrifice for the radio station, you know, this is great. And so man, I go home and I look up the reviews of Schindler's List. I mean, there's, there's full frontal nudity, male and female. There's all sorts of sex scenes. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a really unedited. It's really, you know, it's not a movie that you would want to, Use that to prove a point in a Christian setting. But it's okay in our society. It's okay to do that because eh, everybody's seen it anyway. You know, I know this woman is saving herself for marriage, but I want her. I want her bad. And I know she's a Christian and I'm a Christian, but you know, I have this real compelling personality. And so I'm going to convince her to throw away her morals and her commitment to Christ so that I can sleep with her and end up probably not marrying her anyway. This is how we cause people to stumble, our fellow believers. And do we build each other up to for godly glory, or do we tear each other down? Do we, do we look at each other and go, man, I just, I love that about you. I love 
you know, your love or your patience or, or your gift here? Or do we just pick out things that irritate us about each other and always focus on them? That girl just annoys me. She gets on my nerves or I can't, but he just, he never shuts up. I mean, why do we do that? And so we wonder how we can be guilty of causing others to stumble. And why don't we do it every day? You and I are supposed to live righteous lives. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. And this woman is coming to this church, this Jezebel spirit is coming to the church, and she's deceived many of them like she's deceived many in the church today to do what we think is right, irrespective of what the Scripture says. The sin in the church of Thyatira was not Jezebel. The sin in your life is not Satan. It's not Jezebel. The sin in the church of Thyatira is that the leadership of the church allowed that teaching of Jezebel into the church. There was no watchman on the wall, no guard at the gate of the church. There was nothing. We talk about being a man in the man's class, and we talk about a man needs to be a provider. Got that. Got to have a job. He needs to be a, uh, a prophet and a priest. Got that. You have to be the spiritual leader. But he has to be a protector. Well, I will. If somebody breaks into my house and wants to kill my wife, I'll stand in front of them and take the bullet for them. Oh, that's so John Wayne-ish. That's not what we're talking about here. How about being a protector by not allowing evil into your home? Watching television, and all of a sudden my kid walks into the room, and I quickly have to turn to another channel because I don't want my kid to see what I'm watching. And I'm doing that in front of my wife, and it's okay. And I can use profanity. I can cuss at her. I can I can put her down. I can... I can disrespect my husband and, and we just, we just let that enter into the home and think it doesn't have an effect on us. Well, the Lord had some terrible things to say about this church and the apostates who followed her. Let me just read the rest of this letter. It says, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. So therefore the Lord gives you a promise. And here's the promise. I will cast her into a sickbed. Not only her, but also those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. But then there's an out, unless they repent of their deeds. In other words, there's always grace, and there's always an opportunity to turn it around. But God always judges us by our deeds, not our words, but our deeds. He always does that in Scripture. I will kill her children with death. Those are spiritual children, those who believe Jesus continuing generations like she did. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will even bring glory to myself by this judgment I will take upon this church. And again, I will give to each one of you according to your works. We go from the collective churches to the individual. I will, all the churches will know, but I will give to you based on your works. But it even gets worse. I want, you to, I want you to watch this. As bad as this church is, it is better than the church of the Reformation. It's better than a church that we hold our, our foundation to. Again, Ephesus, good and bad. Smyrna, only good. Pergamos, good and bad. Thyatira, the Catholic church, good and bad. Ah, the church at Sardis, the next phase, the Reformation, Martin Luther's 95 Thesis. I, on here I will stand, and if I can't change the church, I'll move out of it. The political intrigue, Calvin and Zwingli and all those guys, and the Lord says nothing good about that church. Nothing. But you have to, God, because it's doctrine that matters. No, to him it's unity. It's God's responsibility to correct doctrine in a church. It's our responsibility to stay together under one lordship. I'll show you this in a second. The Philadelphia church, the church of the great missionary movements, only good things about the church age in which we live right now, Laodicea, nothing good to be said about it. I find this sobering. That I guess Smyrna and Philadelphia, he only says good things to, but the two churches that he says nothing good about are the Church of the Reformation, and I grew up in that, and the church in Laodicea, and which we're applying what we know. How can that possibly be? It's not about doctrine as much. I mean, it is for us. We argue about doctrine. We fight about doctrine. We, I mean, I've had people leave this church because we had little minute disagreements on baptism and what it involved. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. And that's what happens in the age in which we live. And I'm right and you're wrong. But in a family, it's not that way. 
I mean, do I agree with all my family members? No, I allow them to be wrong. <laughs> you do too. You know, but the fact is, we're still family. Blood. Blood is thicker than those, those petty disagreements. And sometimes in a family, you can have a, a son literally total reject the sincerely held convictions of a father. And the father says, you know, I didn't raise you like this. I know, Dad, but I just see things differently politically or economically or, or that, that situation. Does the father say, fine, you're not my son anymore until you can agree with me exactly on everything that I think is important? Never. You're still my son. We just have some disagreements we need to work through because unity and family and blood is far more important. That's what the Catholic Church still maintains today. And we, rather than the Reformation and even us, rather than dealing with the heresies the right way, we decided to just cut and run. And now you can't put it back in the bottle again. It's spread everywhere. Watch, watch how the Lord values unity. This is his last prayer. This is the time when the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for us. You know, he, he prays for his disciples, and then all of a sudden he says, I'm not praying for those alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Well, what would that be? Well, they will stay faithful, and I will protect them, and they will have true doctrine. No, that's not what he prayed. That they may be one. How much? To, to what degree are we to be one? as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us. Oh, my gosh. You want us to be united as the Trinity? United as the kind of relationship you have with the Father and the Holy Spirit? How can that be? And why is that even important? That the world may know, may believe that you sent me. We are unified as a group that came out of the world, as a church, as a living organism of believers in Christ, and we're unified in such a way that the world knows that we're different. But when we're splintered on every street corner and can't stand each other because, you know, they praise raising their hands and they praise with their feet to the, to the, or their foreheads to the ground, and so therefore we can't have fellowship. I mean, that's, that's where we are today. And you wonder why the Lord has good things to say about the church in Thyatira? It's because they stayed together as a church. And you wonder why we, because of doctrinal issues, decided that we're done. We're gone. We're gonna, we're gonna set up our own nation, set up our own church, same set up our own country. And the Lord has nothing good to say about us because we're no longer a church anymore. We're a fragmented body spread across the world. They can't really agree on anything. Isn't that sad? He continues, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Why? Why would you give us your glory, Lord, that they may be one, just as we are one? Then he goes on to say it again, I and them and you and me, that they may be made, made perfect in one. Why? That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I don't, um, I don't know how to fix this. I don't, uh, I, I'm not sure it can be. I don't know if you can globally fix the church, the Protestant church, the way it is right now. And, but I do know that we can fix this church, and you can fix your own family. And there's a, there's a, a sentiment out there that, that we need to understand, that when it comes to believers in Christ, you believe them before anybody else. You realize that? I mean, it's family. My son, well, I will tell you, I will tell you a story. We had a, a, a couple and a couple of their kids came to our church and, um, um, you know, uh, Justice was playing with a couple of their boys and all that kind of stuff. And, and I remember Justice comes up to me and says, Hey, this older kid, um, said, and I don't remember if he hit somebody or he had called somebody a bad name, used profanity. I don't really remember what the story was. And so, I got together with the other family's father, and Justice came, and this other kid came, and my son has never, ever lied, ever. As far as I see, he ever lied to you? Actually, you wouldn't know because he's probably pretty good at it. But anyways, never, never. This wasn't part of his frame of reference back then. And I remember that uh, we're sitting there, and, and I said, hey, so what happened? And the other kid goes, oh, Justice used these, and he blamed him doing exactly the same thing that Justice said the other guy did. Who did I believe? Who? Always. It's my son. It's my family. 
to my son. And you would have to show me an immense amount of evidence to convince me otherwise. Know what I mean? Church doesn't do that. We believe other people. I mean, we're, we're very easy to, to hold a grudge against each other. And that's not how family operates. Family discusses things. Families work things out. Family forgives. And so we may not be able to put the church of the, the world church back together again, but we can sure begin working in our own family. True? So if we turn the clock back, what should the faithful in Thyatira have done? There's a, the church leaders and the majority of the congregation is believing something that is false. Should we cut and run? Should we do something different, have nothing to do with those kind of people? What, what should we have done? Should they have left the church, like in the Reformation, and start something brand new that we know the Lord says nothing about today? Or should they have stayed and worked with the Lord, because it's his job to correct the church and the abuse and the satanic influences in the church? What should they have done? I mean, how should the church then have responded to their church authorities? Now listen, we're Americans, and our nation was founded on rebellion. And it's founded on independence. And we value our independence and our rebellion and our, I'm not going to have, you know, anybody tell me what to do. I've never had a king over me and, you know, no taxation without representation. And if you don't like it, I'm out of here, bub. I mean, we, we admire those traits. And this is so hard for me to even get my head around. Our heroes are Rambo. John Wayne, you know, I gotta listen to what you gotta do. Pow, take that with you and all that kind of stuff. I mean, those are our, those are our heroes. We don't admire submissive people. We don't admire people who, you know what, I'm just gonna bear up under it and try to, in my own little way, change it for the, no, we want people that, you know, Alamo kind of stuff. And I mean, our nation was founded on that. And it's in our DNA. And it's so hard when it comes to church authority, especially something that we know is wrong, to, to respond to that. How, how, how should we do that? What does the Scripture say? I want, you, I want to close by letting Peter tell you. It's not me. But letting Peter tell you. Look what he says. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Well, that's fleshly lust. That, that means like sexual lust. No, that can also be pride. That can also be independence. That can also be I'm right and you're wrong. That can also be the, the fact that, you know, I'm not going to have any authority over me at all. That, I mean, it's a lot of fleshly lust involved here. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers and the world will, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Okay, how are we to do that? How am I to abstain from those lusts? And, and how am I to live the kind of life that lost people will glorify God in the day of his visitation? Next passage. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Doesn't say whether it's a good ordinance or a bad ordinance. Doesn't say whether I agree or don't agree. But I'm to submit myself to every ordinance of man. Why? For the Lord's sake. For his sake, for his name. It's exactly what Christ did. How often did Jesus talk about the practice that the uh, Romans had of taking their daughters, as they wanted sons more than daughters, and placing them uh, near Gehenna at a uh, garbage site just to let um, exposure take their lives? And we would call it abortion today. Uh, how, much, how much time did Jesus talk about that? None. One is issue. On this issue, he's going for the hearts of men. Well, what about Nero? I mean, good night. You can't think of a worse emperor than Nero. And in all Paul's letters, when he talked about Nero being emperor, how many of those did he advocate rebellion? Or did he say disparaging thing about disparaging things about Nero, like we do all the time on Facebooks about our political officials? I mean, how many times did Paul do that? Do you remember? Not one. Not one. Matter of fact, he's very Governing authorities that Peter's talking about are the ones that put him to death. So what governing authorities are you talking about, Peter? Whether as to kings, as supreme, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Why? Why should I submit to something I think is wrong? Peter continues. 
for this is the will of God. That's why. That by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not losing your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of God. Okay. So who am I to submit to? I mean, who am I to yield my rights to? In the last two verses of 1 Peter chapter 2 tell us. To honor all people. I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing that um, the scripture says in this deal of eating meat sacrificed to idols, that Paul says that there's nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to an idol because an idol is just a stick. It's just a piece of rock. It really doesn't mean anything. And so if you go to the meat market and they tell you, hey, this meat is uh, sacrificed to idols, it don't matter. It doesn't affect you spiritually. It ain't no big deal. Got that. But if a fellow brother who struggles with that. Maybe maybe they're not quite there yet with the liberty. Maybe that fellow brother is, was, was, was saved out of idolatry, and it's a big deal to him that if my eating meat and exercising my liberty is a stumbling block to my weaker brother over here, Paul says, I will never eat meat again. Never. Because of the love I have for him, I do honor him. Yeah, but what about when it goes, uh, like, like when you're out, evangelizing. Oh, Paul gives an example of that too. If I'm at somebody's house and I'm trying to win them to Christ and we're having a meal together and they serve as meat sacrificed to an idol and the guy I'm with over here says, whoa, I can't eat that. But wait, wait, wait a second. I mean, this guy wants to get saved. You don't want to offend him. We're trying to lead him to Christ. No, it's not about that lost person. It's about the, the wholeness of the saved person. What Paul says is, I'm with this guy. I'm with this guy. Because it's family. It's blood. It's, it's those who have been bought with a price. I'm to honor all people. I'm to love the brotherhood. And the word here is agape. I'm to fear God. And to me, the hardest part, I'm to honor the king. Honor the king. We don't have a king. We have a president. We have a supreme court. We have Congress. We have the swamp, as they call it. And I would love to wipe the swamp out and start all new again with people who agree just like me. You know what I mean? The people who just like me don't get elected. They believe like me, don't get elected. I'm the honor of the king. I mean, that's what the church in Thyatira did. Unlike the church in Sardis that we're going to look at next week, our church. And I believe it's the fact that that church still maintained itself as a church is the reason why God said some good things about it. The point in the church of Thyatira is not the corruption that we talked about last week. I mean, God, God's going to take care of that, but it has to be something they're doing and we're not. And it must be something the Lord values greatly, and that is unity. And if that is true, then we must rethink everything. How to think, rethink everything that we do. I mean, what I'm doing, bringing, bringing unity to the body of Christ, I mean, am I, am I loving Am I loving my spiritual family as much as I love my temporal family? I mean, do you realize that, that um, we are the body of Christ? We call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, but we don't love each other as much as our brothers and sisters. And that's wrong because this family of Christ lasts forever. But my relationship with my brother won't. Because if he dies tomorrow in his sins, I will never see him again. Never. And he'll be cast into a Christless eternity. He'll be cast into hell. And, and there's nothing I can do about that. But my relationship with Debbie as my sister in Christ lasts forever. So it's this family, it's this unity and other believers in Christ that we need to focus on. And not the things that just divide us. And I'll close with this. I am. Um, Many years ago, 20-something years ago, I was pastoring in LaGrange, Georgia, and it was back during the heat of the uh, Promise Keepers meeting. You remember those kind of things? Remember Promise Keepers? And it was, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a middle town, and it was a racially divided town, and it was a typical South Georgia town, and um, uh, Promise Keepers was coming to Atlanta, and so these groups had gotten together and decided they would try to drum up pastoral support for Promise Keepers. And so they had a meeting at some Methodist church, and they asked all these pastors to attend. 
And we all did. And there's probably 60 pastors that are there. And all the white guys sat on this side and all the black guys sat on this side. I mean, I don't think it was designed to be that way. But when I walked in, I just felt more comfortable with the white guys and the black guys. I mean, it wasn't a racial thing, but it was just divided like that, pretty much like our nation is today. And some white guy got up and talked and Okay, and then black pastor got up and talked, and I'll never forget what he said. He started out his message this way. He says, if God is your father, I am your brother. And that settles it all. That settles it all. It doesn't matter who we voted for. It doesn't matter if he voted for Obama and, you know, I voted for Trump. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter how he views this or I view this. It doesn't matter about the stuff that divides us. The reality is, if God is his father, he is my brother. My brother and I, my brother Ken and I disagree on almost everything, life in general. Yet I love being around him. He's my brother. I love that guy. He's, he's my brother. And even though we dis- those disagreements don't break our relationship as family because blood transcends petty differences. And it has to be that way in the body of Christ. Now, I can't fix this out there. But I am asking, and we really don't have a problem with it here, but I'm asking us to take it up to the next level here, to love each other and trust each other and forgive each other and give cut each other slack like we do our own family so that at least we can experience and our children can experience a microcosm of maybe what God wanted the church to be anyway. Amen? Let me pray.